It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Everybody, welcome back to Telescope Talk. It's been a while since we've done this hangout, so it's, it's, I'm excited to get started back on this again. This is the first one of 2020, uh, and today we're going to be talking uh, with the folks at Unistellar, uh, who have come out with a new telescope called the EV Scope. Now, this scope is one that I have been looking forward to since I first met my guest Frank Marches, who's he's with me here. Uh, I'm going to bring him up in just a second, but when I first met him. But in his offices in uh, at SETI, he was telling me about this, and I hadn't heard. Uh, it was just a brief overview of what it could do, and and they were still developing it at the time. And I thought to myself, "Wow, this could really be one of those scopes that is a game changer, right?" And I'll talk about what I mean about that in just a little bit. But I think that in we're seeing a bit of an inflection point in amateur astronomy, and that inflection point has to do, and it's driven primarily by our light polluted skies. Those of us who use eyepieces a lot are suffering. And believe me when I tell you, I love looking through an eyepiece. But it is getting harder and harder, I don't care how much you spend on an eyepiece, to get decent views of some of these objects, especially if you live in light-polluted skies. So telescope manufacturers are starting to notice this, and they're starting to give us options and opportunities, a lot of them relating to imaging, a lot of them uh, not. And so... In this case, today we're going to be talking with the uh, chief op- chief scientific officer, uh, Frank Marches. He's also the head of the Exoplanets Group at SETI, and I met him a year ago. So let me go ahead and bring him up so we can see him. Uh, there he is. Hi, Frank. Welcome to Telescope Talk. It's good to see you again, by the way. Thank you. Hi. How are you, Tony? Good, thanks. I'm good. So the EV, you sound like a busy guy because also, you also look for exoplanets and presumably life uh, at at your place of employment, but you're also involved with this company called Unistellar. And so its main, I think its only product, but correct me if I'm wrong, is the EV scope. So why don't you, I have one right back here that you guys have loaned to me so that I can use. You have one behind you. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about it. Now, for the guys, for everybody watching, let me just say, uh, we got the live chat going. I also have a... Discord server. The link to that is in the description box. I put a link to the Unistellar website in the description box. And this is your chance. If you've got questions, I'm already seeing a lot of the old, uh, some of my old friends, uh, John Suffolk, Galaxia, um, Hans, all of you guys, welcome back. Andrew Planet. It's so good to see you, Peter Q. So thank you. And also I've saw in the, in the chat before we got started that many of you have are either you either own an EV scope or you're considering purchasing one or you are waiting for yours to be delivered. So let's go ahead and get started. So tell us about, give us first of all, a big overview of what the EV scope is. Tell us what kind of telescope it is. Is it a Newtonian? Is it a Max Utah? What is its optical design? And then maybe talk a little bit about some of the uh, characteristics. So before talking about the telescope, okay. let me talk about the company Unistellar. It, all right, fine, so go right ahead. Unistellar is a company that wants to democratize bring back astronomy to the people. And for this, we also face the same problem than you. I'm an astronomer, so I know how complicated it is to use a small telescope. Uh, my colleagues, uh, co-founders, Arnaud, Laurent, and Antonin, also been using telescopes for various years, and they 
face the same problem that we all face. Uh, you buy a telescope, um, you spend some time learning how to use it, calibrate it, collimate it. You go outside, you try to see Andromeda, you see a grayish dot, and nobody is excited, right? That's the reality right now of astronomy because we all live close to cities, most of us. So with this problem, facing this problem, we basically put together our brains and we thought about how we could make astronomy accessible again. And that's where it come from, come, that's where it come from the EV scope behind me. So the EV scope is the, a digital telescope. It's the first digital connected telescope. It's a telescope for everybody. That's the way uh, we, we envision it. So the way it works, well, it's basically a classical Newtonian telescope with a 4.5 inch uh, aperture. But at the prime focus here, uh, we put basically a, a, a camera. It's a CMOS detector, a very good CMOS detector with a very low noise and uh, extremely reliable. On board the telescope, you also have a computer here that has analyzed the images coming from the, from the detector and also has its own software that we developed, a software that can do uh, plate solving, can analyze the image in real time, and do some kind of trick for anal data analysis that will allow you to see in the eyepiece on the other side of the telescope, and that you can see on your side, basically, um, an, an image. So the image you see is the image as if you had a telescope, as if you're observing the sky live. Okay, that's an image made only from the observation collected by the telescope. And so what you see in the eyepiece are photons coming from the telescope of an object. And the longer you look, the better the image will be. Okay, now let me just, I just want to go into this point a little bit more because you're hitting on something that is a big soapbox of mine. And that, and that goes back to your comment about telescope for the people and our night skies or giving the night skies back to people. Um, I believe, and it sounds like you agree, that the, that the hobby of visual observing is, is threatened in the sense that our night skies are never going to get better. I mean, we're not going to, if we, if we can't see the Milky Way where we live now, it's not someday going to get better. And one day we're going to, oh yeah, they, they, you know, the cities I live around all got together and made my dark skies available to me again. Uh, so now I can see the Milky Way. That's never going to happen. So it's only going to get worse and it's been getting worse for decades. Now, as I said at the top of this, this hangout, I am a visual guy. I like looking at an eyepiece. I like sitting behind a telescope uh, in the cold, in the warm, wherever it is. I just enjoy that direct connection. But I have noticed that when I try to see the Orion Nebula or when I try to see M1, there's especially the really faint ones, right, through a giant 20-inch Dobsonian with a $1,500 Teleview eyepiece in it, I'm underwhelmed because I've got so much sky background now that I can barely see. And I've got to put in filters and these filters are blocking out light, making everything dimmer. And so when I saw the EV scope with the eyepiece on the side of it, okay, I thought to myself, okay, it, I didn't know at the time the details. And we're going to talk about some of those today about how you are I assumed they were amplifying photo photons. It used to be back in the old days we had photomultiplier tubes where you could take a few photons and make them make them into magnify them a little bit. That's how night vision goggles work. So I thought it was something along those lines. But it sounds like what you're doing is you've put one detector, a CMOS detector, at the end of the optical telescope. So you've got the primary at the back, and at the top uh, is the secondary. It's sitting on a on a secondary vein, just like you see in any telescope. But instead of a secondary mirror, 
you've put in a detector. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Now, what is the resolution of that detector? That's 1.3 megapixel. So 1.3. It's an IMX224. Uh, it's a detector which is uh, as a buyer matrix, so it's, a sensitive, it's sensitive to color. And it's a detector which is used in the industry because it's a very low, low, low noise and it's a very, extremely sensitive. So that's the, that's the reason we choose this detector. Okay, and CMOS detectors have the advantage over, say, CCDs in the sense that those are basically your two types. If you don't know a lot, if you're watching this, you don't know a lot about detectors. There's basically two main classes of detectors. One of them is a CCD array, which is kind of a, which is a little more sensitive to, to many wavelengths, but it, the readout time is slower. They also have a lot lower noise, but CMOS detectors have a very fast readout speed because instead of doing a bucket brigade of reading out each pixel, they read out big chunks of the, of the array at any given time. So you have a faster readout. And so is it the same? To, so... Maybe I won't ask that until after I talk about some of the modes of operation. So the philosophy, you've, you've told us that, the philosophy of Unistellar and making the EV scope is to make something simple to use that basically compensated for the fact that our night skies are disappearing under light pollution, which is great. I think that's an admirable goal and one that I think is only, we've only just started to see the tip of what's possible there. Um, but now, um, you're, but you also give other capabilities to this as well, which I think we'll talk about in a bit as well, but darn it. I forgot my question that I was leading to. Okay. I'll, well, I'll think of it later, but with the CC with the, Oh, I know what it was. The, the modes of operation. Okay. So when you, for, I've had this for a few weeks, I've been playing with it and I'm going to attest to the fact that this, <laughs> this is. You don't need a manual on how to set it up. If you know how to level the tripod, which is the hardest thing you've got to do, and find the power switch, it turns on, and you then need to get an app for your phone. It's free. You download it off of uh, Google Play or uh, iTunes Store. Connect it to your phone because it has its own hotspot on it. And then once you're connected, you... Um, you can communicate with the telescope. And the first thing you do is you focus it and then it, it you just tell it, you push a little crosshairs on the, on the app and you tell it, it, it looks at where it is and it says, okay, I know where I'm at. What do you want to see? It's, it's that simple to set up. Um, but there's, but once you're there, there's several modes of operation. So do you want yeah. to talk about that? The, 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 yeah. the live view versus the enhanced vision and all of that stuff. And I'll just point out real quick for those of you who don't have one, I should have brought this closer to me, but the, the focus knob is on the bottom of the, of the tube. Yeah, so the mode of operation is you just turn it and you're and you're actually moving you're actually moving the primary. I think you're moving the primary, right? Up and down? Yeah, that's correct. Oh, okay. You move the primary directly. Now I just so the mode of I didn't see any mirror shift, by the way, when I did that. A lot, a lot of times you see these kind of things, you the mirrors will shift uh -huh. in there and I didn't see that in, in the EV scope. So that's good. So the mode of operation to go back to this. Yeah. The, there is two modes. There is a live view and the enhanced vision. So the live view is basically um, what you will see with a normal a classical a standard telescope, you see uh, the image is live. Okay, you put your hands in front, you will see the object disappearing. You can point some bright target like the, the moon, 
like uh, Jupiter, Saturn, uh, anything you want, you will see live. That's no processing, basically. It's really the data has coming from the, the, from the, the telescope. And then we have the enhanced vision. The enhanced vision is basically the, the way for us to improve the image, the image quality by taking short exposure, analyzing each, each of them with the computer on board, stacking them after applying some derotation, because you know that there is all, the, move, the sky is moving, so we need to adjust the rotation of the sky, and stacking them. And we stack them over time. So what you see is an image getting better in the eyepiece because you get a better, a longer exposure time. So we're creating a long exposure view of the sky. Yeah. There's a lot of things happening in the enhanced vision. It's not, I described to you some, the basic here. It's more complex. Of course, we do some dark subtraction. Of course, we remove some bad pixels. Of course, we, uh, we do some, we uh, apply some kind of suppressors in the algorithm, such as we detect vibration in the case to be green or someone is kicking with the, with his eye, the eye, the eyepiece. The telescope will automatically recognize that and remove this frame. So those are stuff that we, in fact, developing over time. We, the one you have right now has the old software. There is a new software coming soon. It's going to be better. And every month, we are planning to even get better and better software, so better image quality. Okay. And uh, uh, so what the when you so when you use it, I have to say that one of my favorite things to look at what the, when I took it out, it was, um, you know, getting it was kind of early evening, the sun had just set so I could still see the Andromeda galaxy low in my western horizon. And I took it out and I saw it in live view. And um, I really liked I mean, what it seemed to be doing was taking a whole lot of very short exposures and feeding them through the eyepiece. And that had the effect on me when I looked at it. Of, and, and I could see color in the Andromeda galaxy. So that had the effect on me of being able to uh, feel like I'm looking directly at an eyepiece, only it's being a little bit more enhanced in that sense live. So I really enjoyed that experience. But it doesn't compare to when you put it on uh, enhanced mode. And what is the exposure? So you, you just said that it, 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 it starts to build up a stack of images, and in between each image, it does a little bit of, of calibration. What's the exposure time of each individual frame as it begins to co-add? So is right now, each exposure time is four seconds. We, we set this up to four seconds, but we really change this over time because we, for, we can ex expect, for instance, to be able to have implement some more complex mode of observation, like HDR mode or something equivalent. So that's possible. Right now, the one you have basically will do four seconds exposure on every target in an enhanced vision. So I'm glad you mentioned the color, and I'm glad you mentioned as well the eyepiece, because that's really truly what we, we want people to get the connection with the sky. We want people to know where they're, where they're looking to. With this eyepiece, you know where you're looking at. You know where is this Orion Nebula that you just observed. The connect, it's a telescope. That's really what we are trying to do. It's a telescope, something that connects you back to the to the cosmos. So, what did you think when you uh, when you so what what kind of object did you observe? I'm kind of curious. You have mentioned Andromeda, but why did you observe from Florida? Okay, so yes, yeah, so I um, I started with uh, like I said some of the I started with the Andromeda galaxy. It was low in the west. I got it because I wanted to get it before it got too late. 
And then I moved from there to um, uh, to see the Orion Nebula and the uh, Crab Nebula. Because I've only been using this for the past week or so, I've had to deal with this moon. Last night it was over a half moon, so I had a lot of sky background. Um, but even so, I did notice that when I was, as I was building up an image of the Orion Nebula, for example, and I also had some high cirrus clouds, I, I was still able to get a lot of the color gradients that were in the Orion Nebula, as well as the um, uh, some of the features in the nebula itself. Again, coming from the fact that this had a high sky background and that I had high cirrus clouds, I wasn't expecting to get a lot of super great detail. And I'll, I'll show you some images of where there was some good detail uh, in the Orion Nebula especially. So I looked at that, and I also looked at um, the Pleiades and the moon. Now, uh, one of the things that I, I, I didn't... Um, I wasn't maybe it's because of my software version or whatever, but I, I when I was looking at the moon last night, it kept it wouldn't do the enhanced vision mode with it. So I just took screen grabs of my um of my of my screen, and I'm I'm telling you guys I'm going to make a video about this here in the coming week. So I don't want to get too much into my opinion on it is until later uh, when I make these videos and, and I get more time with the scope. Right now, I want to introduce you to the scope with uh, with Frank. So. Um, so those were the things I looked at with it, and I, I'll tell you, the thing that impressed me the most was the Crab Nebula, and here's why. <laughs> the Crab Nebula is, is, a, is a, an object for me that holds special significance. When I first started observing with a 6-inch RV6 Criterion Newtonian, a piece of crap telescope that I had when I was a teenager, the very first time I saw the Crab Nebula was a, an event for me because I must have scanned past the Crab Nebula a thousand times and never saw it. And then when I did finally see it, I mean, I literally was like doing a dance in the dark that I was so happy. So every time I get a scope, the first thing I want to look at is the Crab Nebula. And when I looked at it with the EV scope, you know, setting it up, like I said, I turned it on, clipped it in, and I said, okay, go to M1. And it slewed it to M1. I couldn't see anything under until I hit the enhanced vision. And then after about... I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, I started to see a smudge appear on the, the phone. And it, as, the, as, as it built up and got brighter and brighter, it was, uh, it was there. And it was, I mean, this is the Crab Nebula. And I'll also point out that I did this underneath a streetlight on purpose because on my property, I have five acres, it's dark, but I also have one of those agricultural lamps that, that, that I, I, and I was only 20 feet from that. And I still, with the half moon, was able to see detail in the Crab Nebula. So the enhanced vision was great. But I, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the algorithm a little more because one of the things I did notice was that high clouds would come in between me and the object. Do you look at every successive image in the COAD and then... Um, like remove them if they aren't of a certain quality, or do you just put all images in the stack, regardless? That's exactly what we do. Okay. We in fact analyze the image, and if we see that an image has some issues, that could be a high background because clouds, or because someone passed in front of it, or some the image is suddenly suddenly offset it because someone kicked the telescope. All the image, all the stars on the image are striped, so move because someone kicked the telescope or it's windy, we remove this image. Okay. So basically, you will only see the good images kicking stacks all the time. Right. And that's a significant 
importance for most of us because you probably do like me demos. You go out and you show the telescope to people, right? And you know how people are with telescopes. They're all excited about looking in the eyepiece and see. And most of the time, they keep the telescope with their eye, with their head, with their backpack, with their hat, whatever they're wearing, they will keep your telescope. So we decided to implement this kind of mod to make sure that this telescope is some, uh, provide an experience that you can share with people. Yes, and I think that's, especially for beginners, really important. I don't know how you want to do this, Frank, but there's some there's some comments in the live stream that I want to respond to, but I don't know if you want to get into it yourself. Um, but there is um, a couple of con a couple of uh, comments. One's from Thunderfoot, who says that local lights only matter for light adaptation of your eyes. Well, of course it it matters there, but it also matters if you're underneath the street light. It it provides it, it puts a lot of light scatter in your telescope as well as sky glow, and three thousand dollar telescopes to see a smudge. Have you ever paid for a Teleview eyepiece? They're upwards $1,500. I have some, and I can tell you when I put it in, I see a smudge. So the, the question of value and cost is, an, is, is a subjective one, and it's one that every person has to evaluate for themselves. I've seen people, you know, people think Teslas are a good value. They spend $30,000, $50,000 on an electric car. They think that's a good value. So we can't, when it comes to price, I'm not going to, go into value judgments on that on on that right now unless Frank wants to comment on it but I will say that these prices are um, not extravagant the you know these if you add up the kinds of things these telescopes come with uh, and you then well if I wanted to buy these separately then uh, what would it cost me you're not looking at too big of a price difference I don't know if you want to comment on that Frank or not. Well, I just would I just mentioned that Galactic Hunter made some calculation in his video and basically showed that the cost of the eviscope is comparable to the cost of an astrophotographer. But I would say one more time that this is not an astrophotographer. This is a telescope. This is more than having pretty pictures. This is a tool that is easy to use. It's a tool that basically you want to see, uh, uh, you, read that, you read that there is a comet uh, passing by in the sky, and uh, discovered recently by astronomers, you take the telescope, five minutes later, you're observing the comet. That's the way we envision this, this telescope. And a, a tool which is easy to use, you don't need to know much about astronomy, you don't need to know where to point to find the target because the telescope will do it for you. And then you enjoy looking at this comet, you enjoy this moment, you share it with your friend on social media, and also you learn, you learn where is this comet. And you know, there's something I notice as well, and it happened also for me, is that when people take the time to do something for, for, by themselves, to see a comet, to see a supernova, they learn about it, they read about it. And they basically are capable to understand better the cosmos and the universe around us. And that's really the key part of this, of this project. The outreach is significant. And that's, not, that's really what I would like to focus on, on the science, the outreach, and the experience. Yeah. And okay, so, and that and that's a good point because you know the the experience of looking through these telescopes is is one that um, I don't know we're 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 starting to lose a lot of the uh, a lot of the 
old school, you know, ability to look through eyepieces. And I and I think I want to make a distinction here because telescopes like the EV scope and the Stellina, both of which I've used, these are telescopes not meant to replace imaging telescopes. Is that would you characterize it that way? Would you that's say that's exactly what I that's what saying. you just got through saying. So I want to I want to emphasize that point. Yes, you're going to get better images uh, with a with a different setup. Whether you if you want to buy a different mount, a different a different optical, an, an APO refractor, uh, with with a really nice camera on the back, you're going to be able to get better images. But when it, when you factor in the ease of use of these telescopes and the fact that you are getting outside observing in less than I don't know I've I've never it's never taken me longer to, than ten minutes to get something to look at with this telescope and that's if i'm if i'm dragging it so it's you know it's really quick it's easy to set up and again i'm emphasizing that that the uh uh light pollution part of it is got to be addressed and and the only way i think you're doing is with telescopes like this so let's talk a little bit about the the social media part of it or the social aspect of it you have an app and a telescope like this at a star party would one of the things that in star parties in the past, you go and everybody buys, you know, brings their really great telescopes. You see all of these really great setups and you're looking through everybody's eyepieces and things like that. Some people are imaging, but now I see star parties kind of transforming into a more social experience because you can just connect to the, tel you could download the app on your phone, connect to the telescope right there and grab these images. Is that right? That's correct. So, we're still working on this. As I said, the software is really is still in development, but the app is already work, working quite well. So now people can see uh, what you can, what you're observing with the app. You basically can share with people uh, with people around doing the, uh, a demonstration, and we're going to make this even better. What people are observe, what people are observing with the telescope, you can connect to the telescope and see on the on the app. And get information as well. That's something very important that I, didn't, I forgot to mention. I'm sorry, but when you when you point to a target, it's not, it's not the telescope is not only slowing to other targets. The telescope also provides information for the target, like some basic information that people want to know and that can explain basically the context of what you observe. So as a user, as an operator, you have access to this, but you can also share that to people around you using the Wi-Fi of the telescope. And they will be able to participate in the demo. Uh, comments about it, you know, it's it's always better to look together something and have an experience together. You learn a lot. Like uh, most of the time, people, some people like to look at details. Some people like to look at the text, understand what ha what happens. So basically, having this community of users around the telescope is providing once again an experience that I think is valuable for astronomers. Yep. Okay. I want to read a couple of the questions here because uh, there's some Go good ones in here. Uh, before we get too much too much further along, uh, Bob Terry wants to know: Can the eyepiece images be piped out to a local computer viewer? Can you repeat this question? Can the images that you see in an eyepiece can they be piped out to a local computer, let's say, to a laptop, or does it so, rely on the does it rely on the app? So right now it's on the app only uh, for a lot of uh, technical reasons. And as I said, the software can change. Maybe in the future, we'll be on a computer. Maybe on the future, we'll be on an, uh, on an iPad. That's something we are considering. Yeah. Okay, good. And, uh, what about the, uh, one of the things I wanted to know was, um, many computers and imagers take, uh, cameras, I should say, take images in FITS format. 
Um, is there a way to get the individual stacked images somehow? Or are you, do you just get the stacked image? So we are working on the backend. And this backend will basically provide the opportunity to the users to download the data and to receive the data processed in the format, uh, in the, the data in a format that they can use for the software, like FITS and TIFF. FITS for the professional astronomer, because we all use FITS and TIFF for most of the, of the digital uh, software. So that will be implemented. Right now, we can, and you may have seen in the app, we can upload the data to us. And that's very valuable for us because we also know then when you're observing, what you're observing can also kind of improve the data processing by looking at the kind of observations which have been taken by the users. Yeah. But we will make the data available because Good. those are new data. You spend your time observing, you spend your time going to some places, of course, we, you will have access to new data. That's really key for us. Right. Okay. Um, uh, Joe Sabin wants to know, uh, please explain enhanced mode to standard mode. And are they through the eyepiece? Um, I think he means, I don't know about standard mode, but, but live mode. Is that a better term? That's, yeah, okay. that's the live. So that's the we did a little bit, but can you explain it just one more time for Joe? So the live mode is basically the data coming live on the detector with an exposure time that can vary from a few milliseconds to uh, four, four seconds. You can adjust that and you can adjust the gain as well. And that's the way you can observe the moon and Jupiter, Saturn, any bright target. Yeah. In this mode, if you have short exposure, you see the atmospheric turbulences. You really see, like if you put your hands in front of the telescope, you see the brightness of your hands on the telescope. Yeah. In the in the la, in the enhanced vision mode, we process images taken of four seconds at the moment. We process process them, and we basically remove some imperfection introduced by the background, by the light surrounding the telescope. We remove images if they are of poor quality. And uh, we do also rotation and tracking at the same time. So basically, we make, the telescope analyzes the image and makes sure that the, the field of view is always the same by following the field of view. Okay, so, uh, of course, because of the sky rotation, but also the, if you move, move slowly the telescope, it will basically slow, uh, move as well to compensate this motion. That's right. Because it is an altaz mount, as things move across the exactly. sky, while it does track and compensate for the Earth's rotation, the image also rotates in the field of view. So you've got to get that out for long exposure photographs. There is something I've mentioned briefly, and I think it's important, is that we do what we call the autonomous field detection, which is a, a kind of plate solving. It's very fast. You have seen that you may, when you use the telescope. Yeah. When you point, when you're ready to observe, you press auto-alignment, and the telescope will basically uh, analyze the field of view, compare with this database of a million stars, and we'll be able to, look, to know, combining the data coming from the phone, which is the location and the time, plus the observation of the sky, it will know where it's pointed. And then from this, you basically switch to choose an object, and the yeah. telescope will move to the object and also, again, analyze to make sure that the object is well-centered and in the field of view. Yeah, I got to I got to attest to that. It, the, the I didn't really worry about where the telescope was pointing when I turned it on, uh when I hit the little crosshairs button on there. I just and it it almost it I didn't worry about getting a bright star or any of that stuff. It just seemed and it, and it found the it did a plate solution and uh, of course I haven't pushed it yet, but you know, it it was and then the go-to was spot on every single time. Does the go-to get better as the night progresses? Like is there a way to have it like sync some 
for example, the Celestron Nexstar 5, you have to use a three-star alignment, which is tedious. <laughs> and then once you've done that, uh, it, this, the, the telescope knows where it is. But throughout the night, as you're finding objects, you can hit a button that lets you sync so that it's a little bit better calibrated. Um, is there any of that going on in the EV scope, or is it just use that one plate solve routine? Uh, every on? time you move to a new target, and, uh, and a field detection is done to make sure that you, you're in the right position. And you may have not noticed it, which is good, because it means that it's fast. Yes. It's yes. so fast that you did not even notice that the telescope is doing. Yeah, I, I'm glad. I, I've got nothing but good things to say about the the pointing and the plate scale, the plate solving. It's been really, really good. Well, we have a fantastic team of uh, software engineers who have been working over the past two years on this project. So. Well, I want, to, I want to read Robert Terrell's uh, comment because it's one that I have that, that I think about a lot. He says, "My whole life, it has been my dream to get a big light bucket, like a like a 16 inch or an 18 inch. Most people say a daub, but having built a fairly crude equatorial mount way back, um, I don't want to go backwards. Ha ha. Um, I want to say something about big light buckets. They are necessary in this day and age for visual observing if you want to see." dim objects or someone and there's no other way around it especially if you're using just an eyepiece but what i've noticed is that imagers especially are going to these apo refractors and smaller uh smaller telescopes like this because the 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 nature of the processing and the nature of the uh detectors are such that we can uh we can get a lot of very faint dim objects uh for a much smaller aperture so that's another trend i'm seeing in amateur astronomy the telescopes are actually getting smaller uh in aperture and i think for two reasons one the ccds are getting better uh the, the detectors are getting better and cheaper and also portability i mean lugging a 16 inch or a uh, 20 inch daub or whatever it is you've got outside an 80 100 pound telescope uh can be onerous for a lot of people it certainly is for me and sometimes i think well Maybe I'll just not go out because, you know, that's a lot of work and, and, and being, if I'm particularly lazy that night, but also a lot of people will buy those and put them in permanent observatories and don't worry about it. But for the rest of us, schlepping out a really long, really large telescope can be a problem. And telescopes like this, I think, are helping bridge that gap. Again, we're talking about visual observing folks, and we're also talking about beginning, getting started in the hobby. What are some of the best ways to get started in the hobby? And and I think this is one of them. Um, I think telescopes like this are one of them. So um, I, I, and I would like to say that we want people to use the telescope. Exactly. Because one of the main issues is that people buy some very, very expensive and big telescope, large size, and then they realize that to set it up, it takes time, it's a commitment. They go to star party once every two months, and that's all. With this telescope, I, I mean, I'm a professional astronomer. I use eight 10-meter class telescopes, as you know, to detect exoplanets and see asteroids around moons. With this telescope, I spend most of my evening now observing. Yes. I observe because of, the, because of the company, of course, but I've been observing a lot because for fun. Like last night, we were observing an asteroid with uh, my new student in the middle of San Francisco. It took us basically literally two minutes to get outside the office with the telescope point to the asteroid. And that's the point. We want people to connect again with the, with the stars. So having something you can carry in a backpack, set up in less than five minutes, we're all very busy. Okay? And that's the point. Okay. You say that in five minutes, you observe, you enjoy, right. you have a good a good time with your friends, or you do something cool for science. 
and that's the transition for the next LD. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's talk a little bit about availability. Apparently, there's some people in the chat who are asking about this. So, uh, what is the the availability of EV Scope when you order one? Uh, how long does it take to get? And um, are there any back orders that you're filling? So right now, we, as you know, we did a Kickstarter in two, end of 2017. We did then uh, Indiegogo. We have a campfire as well recently in Japan. So our priority is to ship the telescope to our backers. Okay. So 3,000 uh, telescope order. And uh, we are about to ship our 1,000 uh, telescopes. So I think we already can say that we are the largest network of telescopes in the world. Um, let's talk about that maybe later. And by the by, the goal is that if you order them now, you can basically get them in July. That's our goal. And uh, we are in production phase, as you know. But hardware is difficult, but we solved a lot of issues in production, and we have once again have a fantastic team in Marseille working on that. So if you order them, I would say in July you have them. you have one of them. Okay, um, so. I want to make sure we're getting to the, I'm, I'm reading the comments and unfortunately there's a lot, so I, I probably missed it, but the people who supported on Kickstarter and, and the uh, Indiegogo and all of that stuff, they're getting their orders filled. Yeah. So we're shipping by country because some for logistical reason. And You're shipping by country. You said, issues. I'm sorry. So we do us. Yes. We okay. do us, uh, Canada and Europe at the moment. Okay. And then after that, we will do uh, the other countries, including Japan, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Okay. Our backers are receiving uh, are receiving almost every week uh, some notice about what's going on, and uh, we uh, we will basically clarify the the shipping for the other countries in the future very soon. We're working on that. Okay, all right. So the people there. I, I'm sorry, I can't find the, uh, the the original comment here. There's been a lot, but to the to the people who um, to the people who are waiting for scopes who supported on Indiegogo and Kickstarter, those telescopes are being shipped. And um, what, in, on a related note, then, what has the response been like as a company to the EV scope, Frank? Well, we have very good. Uh, personally, I've been, you know, a professional astronomer. I invested a lot of my time on this, on this project, and right. a lot of risk as well. That's right. And I'm very glad I did it. I'm glad I did it because when I read the comments from people around the world, when they receive the telescope, when I see my colleagues here at City, some of them bought the telescope, my CEO bought one, for instance. When I see the, 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 the comments, when I see the picture popping up on social media, I think we achieve what we wanted to do. It's not yet 100%. Okay, there is some issues, of course, but it's a great project because it's really changing the way people do astronomy. And people enjoy using using the telescope. They enjoy sharing the data with us. Uh, we may you may know we do this um, challenge of the week. Every week we choose a target and we ask people to observe this target, and they send us the, the pictures and they can compare. And we really truly created this community of people that never met in person that work together by observing across the planet the same object. And where's the community? Really, Is it on Facebook or Instagram or? They're on Facebook, so they created spontaneously some Facebook um, uh, pages. Uh, some of them are on Twitter. Some of them are on different types of social media. Um, 
And that's really, uh, and we also, in our case, we also connect with some of them with uh, emails directly. Uh, I also receive some personal messages out of the blue at uh, random hours of people who have been observing and want to share with them what they observe. And I think this is great. This is, uh, this is the result of uh, hard work and also, I think, a good idea. Okay, Raj Luther is asking, uh, I'm going to show some images here in just a minute, folks. Um, do you have uh, telescopes that can connect to a computer, wireless or wired, to take and save images? Can the EV scope have auto tracking? It does have auto tracking. Uh, we talked about that earlier, Raj. But uh, the, the, the main way you connect to it is with it's its own little wireless hotspot, right? Say that again? The way you connect to the EV scope right now, the only way you can connect yeah. to the EV scope right now is via its own wireless hotspot That's correct. and using the Unistellar app. Is that correct? And using the Unistellar app. Right. Yes, that's and that's correct. and all right. So let's all right, I'm gonna let me show a couple of uh, a couple of images here. So here is um uh M eighty two that was taken back in January. Uh uh, it looks like, what uh, by the way, I kind of like that little circle thing you guys do <laughs> um, um, uh, with uh, the annotates, you know, uh, what it is you're looking at and the exposure time and the uh, and the RA and deck. That's kind of cool. So I like that. Um, just a little way to in social media, at least to advertise, I suppose. So that's that's a pretty cool idea. So there's there's a four there's a two minute exposure of M82. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on any of these, but I'm just showing some of these images. So I don't see the picture you're showing. Oh, you're right. That's right, because you can't see what I'm what I'm broadcasting. <laughs> uh, I'm now showing the Running Man Nebula. This is a four-minute four exposure taken again back in January. I'm going to be showing my images and my video when I make it next week. So um, mm -hmm. I'm still – I'm going to be showing you mine then. Um, here's an image of – here's a five-minute exposure of the Tarantula Nebula taken last late last year. And um, – there is one thing I want to show you. This was uh, a little movie, I think, taken of the Orion Nebula by uh, Galactic Hunters when he got to see it um, in, in Las Vegas. It's just a real quick video showing him looking through the <laughs> hotel room, it looks like, in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I took this video. Of I the Orion this. Nebula. Yeah. So that's an so enhancement. We were in the top of a building uh, in Las Vegas uh, at an event for the CES. And basically, we have a tiny part of the sky visible between the lights and the laser beam of all the buildings. And uh, we observed the Orion Nebula during the evening. It was kind of uh, incredible for people to be able to see the Orion Nebula in the middle of Las Vegas. In the middle of Las Vegas. And this is the point I'm making. Look at that light pollution, okay? Sure. I mean, yeah, Thunderfoot, he's got a lot of ambient light ruining his night vision. But look at, you know, it's also got a pretty high sky background as well. And it's just, you know, look at that. I mean, you're not going to get that with an eyepiece looking at your eye. And that's the point. Okay, yeah. one more. Here's, also, here's... I would like to mention as well that some of the pictures you, you show are not pictures that we took. Those are pictures taken by some of our backers. Uh, the ones Tommy I'm showing now? Took... Yeah, Tommy, no, Tommy took the M82. Yeah. Thank you. For me, by the way, I never met you in person, but we send a lot of messages. So those, this is the key. You see, people observing are using that. If yeah. you look on social media, you will see more pictures. Of course, some are very good because people learn over time. Some are very bad. Okay, right. you can be extremely criticized people who are observing, but 
they are doing it. They go outside, they're doing the observation, they're using the telescope. And as amateur astronomers, professional astronomers, people who like astronomy and stars, we, show, we should all be happy by the fact that people are observing the sky. And what I also like about this method of doing this, Talina does it too, is you when they take these four-second exposures and add them up, you can just leave this thing running. And, you know, this one was five minutes. So there was like, you know, however many images of four seconds uh, of five, for to make a five-minute exposure. When you co-add these, as the night progresses, you get better and better images. Now, I would also advocate for a slightly longer exposure time, or I'd like to at least the ability to select my own exposure time. Um, but that's a feature I could ask for, I suppose, in the software. Um, but I'd like to maybe co-add a 10-minute or a 10-second exposure or a 20-second exposure. Um, because by about then, field rotation does become a problem. But nothing I think longer than, say, 10 seconds uh, would be a nice uh, addition to that. Um, but four seconds, and this is what you get. You just add up a whole bunch until it equals five minutes. So here is a movie. I don't think you can see this, uh, Frank, but this is a, an, a movie that was taken uh, of the ISS transiting the moon. Now, what this is, it, there are several speeds of it. There's normal speed. And then there is uh, faster speeds as it goes through. There's the there it goes there. There's the there's the International Space Station going through, and then they slow it down uh, at various times. Um, and this was about the moon I was looking at last night, maybe a little bit less gibbous, but that that was a, that was the moon I was looking at last night. Um, and yeah. So this movie, I mean, I mean, the story behind this movie. This was this movie was taken by Dan Peruso. Um, he's doing a PhD on education and outreach with the EDScope. And uh, we gave him a, an EDScope, of course, to try. And a week later, basically, he came back with a movie like that. He basically but, found a way to predict uh, the transit, went to the right position, to the right time. There is a lot of stories here because the cops came to see it as well. And they observed together the transit of um, the International Space Station in front of the moon. Okay. Now, with the time that we have left, what I want, I would like to talk very briefly because this could be a hangout all on its own, but the the citizen science component to this telescope is what excites me the most. And telescopes like this, um, for the first time in a relatively simple way, we can get involved in various uh, um citizen science projects. And so why don't you tell to me as the chief scientific officer, some of the capabilities and things you're hoping people will use the EV scope for with respect to citizen science? Yeah. So first I would like to mention that this is truly my role in the company. That's really to develop the science education and the outreach of the EV scope. So when we came with the idea of the EV scope, um, quickly I realized that this instrument has a potential for science. He has a potential for science because uh, basically with a tiny station like this and the sensitivity, we can ask people to participate to campaigns that could work together. So we identify various modes of observations and various topics of scientific topics. One of the most obvious one is the occultation mode. Um, and we validated this uh, quickly in 2017, I think, if I remember, we did the first occultation of an asteroid called Europa, 52 Europa, from Marseille. So in this case, what you're doing, you basically use your telescope to point to an area of the sky, and you know that astronomers, 
made a prediction that there will be an occultation, meaning that the, an asteroid will pass between you and, the, and one of the sky in the field of view. By timing the disappearance and appearance of the, of the star, you basically get a cold. And if you look at multiple users, look at this from Earth, they will basically see the shadow of the asteroid. And that's the best technique for us to find, for us professional astronomers, to get the size, the shape, and know if there is an atmosphere for the largest one, and also see there is rings of, or moons around asteroids. We have been using this technique for years now, and um, the various group of amateur astronomers have been contributed to this. IOTA, Raster, you name it, a lot of those groups have been developing different tools to do that. So with the EVSCOP, we expect it to be doing the same. And we have done it. We validated this on various occasions. We detected the atmosphere of Pluto using this telescope on August 15 from San Diego. August 15, 2019, or 19 from San Diego. That was a great, uh, that was a great ex uh, experiment, of course. But more recently, we observe um, the occultation by the asteroid called Horus. Is, um, it's an, a Trojan asteroid. And it's a target of the NASA Lucy mission. So as you know, before sending a mission uh, to, a, to an asteroid, we always want to know some things about the asteroid, like roughly size and shape, if it has rings and moons, that kind of useful, especially if you send a spacecraft that's gonna fly by the asteroid very quickly. So using this, uh, using the, the EVSCOPE, we detected for the first time an occultation of the, made by the asteroid Horus. And from this, we get an estimate of the size of Horus and a very accurate estimate of the position of Horus. So that's really key. Okay. We want people to participate to scientific investigations, okay? And not only, I mentioned asteroid, but it's, been, it's possible to also detect transiting exoplanets. I'm talking about here, in this case, Jupiter-sized exoplanets orbiting around G-type stars. Yeah, uh, before, before you get to the exoplanets, I want to show that light curve that, that you sent me. Oh, you just have a, it? I have yeah. it, yeah. But I also want to go back to the asteroids for just a minute. So what you're suggesting that people do or what to get people involved is that you would you would have this area of the sky that's where an asteroid is going to occult some background star. And then you send out a notice, say, this is going to happen at this such and such a time. Look at it with your EV scope. And then they get their EV scope out and they do that. And then they send you the images. Is that how it works? Yes. Okay. That's correct. And then you get something, I think, that looks like this plot, right? Um, yes. So this, I don't know if you can see it, but it's the one I've got called Unistellar, um, L-E-U-C-U-S um, plot. And I Lucus. Luke, okay, yes. yes. Can you tell me what we're looking at here? So uh, I need to open it. Oh, okay. Because I don't have it. But yes, let me so. just... Uh, uh, yes. So this is basically a, uh, a series of calls taken by observers. I don't have it in front of me, so I need to remember. Uh, okay, I have it. So I love these figures because that's really one of the most challenging things we have done. Um, we participated in this campaign organized by SWIRI. Um, uh, they, they lead basically the Lucy mission. Okay. So they give us a prediction of when this, um, where and when will happen this occultation. So we've done, my great student, we, we drove to, uh, to the area and uh, we set up an EV stop. And various of the people did the same, but without an EV stop. They, they use another, another telescope uh, in Arizona. We were the only one, I think, in California at the time. 
So what you can see here, the red lines are basically observers, and the dot has the, are the timing of the appearance and disappearance of the star. So what you can see that multiple people observe the appearance and disappearance of the star, and it did not happen exactly at the same time. And when you place them on Earth, you will see that you can you can see that you can draw an ellipse through those dots. And this ellipse is basically the shadow of the asteroid. So from this measurement, including our telescope measurement, you can get an estimate of the size and the shape of the, of the, of the asteroid at the time of the occultation. If you repeat this multiple times, you can get an estimate of the 3D shape model of the asteroid. We have done that for a large number of asteroids. This one is very interesting once again, because that's one of the targets of the NASA Lucy mission. So from your garden, and I'm trying to send you some prediction, I will send you that very soon. Yes, you did send me some, but I think they expired because I didn't get a chance to use it yet. <laughs> but we, I, have, I have the new prediction. For okay, good, good. So I will send it to you, and you will be able to do the same for, um, uh, for, from your garden. What is important here is that the more observer you have, the more accurate you get the shape of the asteroid. And you can see the surrounding of the asteroid. So you can see the rings, you can see uh, the moons that you know we, we may have in Solomon. And that's the point. So this, this, is a, this is a network of telescopes. And this network of telescopes will be able to do this kind of experiment. In right. fact, we have validated it. We already implemented it in our app. There is a very preliminary model right now called asteroid occultation. That's the one we use, and that's the one we have been using for this uh, occultation that you are showing. Great. Okay. Well, one more. I got to show this light curve. Now I'm showing the exoplanet light curve. Um, is this really stuff that was taken with an EV scope? So let me show. Let me see. The red line is the one taken by a Polish astronomer. Right. Using uh, at the same time than ours, I forgot the size of this Alvis telescope. The blue is our observation. And this is the first observation. The first time <laughs> we try to observe a transiting exoplanet. I love it, man. And I cannot I cannot tell you everything, but in fact, three weeks ago I observed a transiting exoplanet was thirty five B from San Francisco and we have a much better light curve. This is just between you and me, okay? Wow. We have validated this on other transiting exoplanets. Well, that so blows me away because to observe it. That's sorry, sorry. no. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was just getting excited because what's incredible about this this graph is that you're you're looking at the dimming of a star as a Jupiter-sized planet passes in front of it, and the difference in brightness. We're looking at what a, one part in what a, a thousand maybe. I mean, it's yeah, one part yeah, one part of a thousand. Yeah, about okay, one thousand five hundred. So one fifteen hundredth of a you know of a degree of brightness or whatever it's not that's not a unit but it's it's tiny tiny uh dips in brightness that you're seeing here and the sensitivity of this detector is such that you can get it now the error bars are bigger i'm noticing that um, of course yeah, yeah. But, but i think we, you'd expect we, that with a cmos detector don't forget this is the first light this is the first time we have much better that analysis now we have better telescope this was done with the prototype for instance, and there was not even the, the final telescope. And I'm sorry. And now but... imagine, imagine now we're going to combine 20 observations of this at, taken at the same time from the same transit. <laughs> so the reason people, uh, we do that not only because it's 
kind of fun to see a transiting exoplanet. There is a lot of interest, interest, scientific interest to do this. I can talk about this for hours, <laughs> but one of them, one of them is the fact that tests, for instance, or Plato in the future, are detecting a lot of those transiting exoplanets. But the problem is that Tess and Plato, they move. Yeah. So they will yeah, not Tess be able is looking to at sectors again. all over the sky. Yeah. So we will basically, we have, a, we have our almighty EV scope, we'll be able to follow those. See, confirm the existence of the exoplanet, confirm the timing, yeah. be able to, to derive ephemeris orbits, and see perturbations. And those perturbations, they're introduced by the presence of another exoplanet. Like super Earth will basically slightly shift the, the transit, the timing of the transit. We know that, and we have a paper in press showing this. It's not, this is a scientific publication. It's not something that come out of a website that I put on the web. This is, we have a scientific publication showing this with, uh, led by Robert Zellem, uh, a professor at, uh, researcher at JPL. So we are now truly building um, an exoplanet watch network. I just, I'm excited when I talk about that. I'm sorry. No, no, but because I'm with you on this. I actually think that this is another inflection point in the hobby of amateur astronomy. Back in the day, when I was coming up out of this, I mean, the thing you could do that could contribute to citizen science was you could join something called AVSO, the American Association for Variable Star Observers. And you could look through your little eyepiece and you could write down how all these variable stars, CFIADs, whatever they are, and you could just send that in and they would, you know, they would compile all this information and get, you know, light curves of all the variable stars out there. That, that was it for a long, long time. Now, detectors have gotten to the point because you couldn't really do that with film, but the, and the, the early detectors weren't sensitive enough. But now, folks, we can look at things with tiny, tiny changes in brightness, 1,500ths of a chain, degree of change there in brightness between uh, the, when, as the planet passes in front of the star. We can see these ourselves. We can measure these planets ourselves. Now, we're limited because of our aperture, and like you say, the, sensitive, the sensitivity of the detector limits us to Jupiter-sized exoplanets. But you know, some of, these are, some of these are pretty darn fun to look at, and they also have orbits, some of them, of only a few hours. So you, get, you can get many uh, light curves, maybe, maybe not Jupiter planets, but other planets have, have them that, that fast. So to me, this is exciting. This is what turns my crank, is to be able to get a TESS object of interest, a TOI from TESS, and say, hey, this candidate's coming up. You want to confirm it? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to confirm it, please. Thank you very much. And there's already a lot of astronomers doing that kind of work now, amateur astronomers doing that kind of work now, and scopes like the EV scope help you do it. Um, in a way that is all in one package and a little bit easier. Now, there are other ways you can do this stuff, but, you know, when you're talking about ease of use, that's an important factor here in getting started in amateur astronomy. So in, uh, give us some final comments on the future of the EV scope in the context of what it can do now, what you envision it doing in the future and the future okay. of this scope. So on the short, like in the next years, what I really want to do is to develop the science course. Um, I, want to, I want the user to be able to receive notification on their phone when something is happening nearby the house. I want uh, you to receive a notification if there is a comet popping up uh, in the sky discovered by some astronomers and we need some uh, additional observations. Uh, I want people to be able to participate in this. Uh, develop the number of scientific, scientific applications of the EV scope is truly important to me. 
because I, there is a lot to do and uh, it's fun, it's interesting. And once again, the science will motivate people to go outside and look at the sky, which is truly what we want people to do. Um, we also want to develop partnerships with uh, uh, federal institutions like NSF and NASA, and of course the one in Europe as well, partnership between with missions, for instance. We are working on that. City Institute is involved. It's a scientific partner of UNISTERA. City Institute has a large outreach program. We have been working with the Girls' School of America. We would like to be able to include the EDSCOP in the future in this uh, in this group, for instance. Put the telescope in the end of people who will not have who will not have access to a large telescope in community colleges, for instance. I would love to those community colleges to be able to use an eviscope to learn how to to learn basically how to use the math and the physics skills that they have been learning at school for astronomy. Because astronomy is fun, it's exciting. Learning how to do this data processing we are doing, to, for instance, to detect an asteroid, to measure the light, the brightness of an asteroid. That could be that could be part of the curriculum of a community college. So that's my ambition, my personal like goal with the Unistellar EV stuff. Of course, the company is thinking big as well. We uh, we may uh, have another product in the future, something maybe even easier to uh, to uh, to develop. Of course, we uh, we are going to improve improve on a regular basis the app and the data processing on board the telescope. We are listening to the comments and the critics coming from people. We are not living in, alone in a bubble. Um, we are reading social media. We are we're looking at videos posted when people criticize our product. We're not perfect. We know that. And that's part of, uh, as a scientist, I learn humility and I know people know better sometimes. So we are listening to them. And of course, we are going to improve the data processing and make the instrument better, easier to use. And that's what, that's basically the way I see on the short, short term. Of course, we have more bigger projects, but right now, the goal is really to develop the science, in my case. May I make people disco uh, discover, as you say, target of interest, a test target of interest would be absolutely amazing. I think that was very well said, Frank. Thank you. And, you know, it's to innovate is easier said than done. And um, I know that as a company, you guys are listening to the input and the feedback that you're getting. And... <laughs> You know, other companies have the same problem with uh, with cost versus, you know, what you're getting and the value and all of that kind of stuff. Like I said at the top of this, and I'm going to have a lot more to say about this in my own video that um, I don't want to take up time in the hangout saying is that is it what is what are you getting out of it is in which what it's worth to you are pretty subjective things. And um to say, I remember the days when I wanted a Celestron 8 refer, uh, telescope so bad when I was in high school. They cost about, uh, in 1977, about $1,500. Uh, and everybody was saying, well, why would I buy this if I could get a, a Tasco at Walmart, or not Walmart because it didn't exist at the time, but some, you know, Sears <laughs> for, uh, you know, for $50. Well, I got what I paid for. You know, if I did that, Tasco, Tasco reflectors, all of the, the cheaper ones, that you know, there's there's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. And what you want is a company that is trying to not only innovate, but you know, balance that, make that balance between cost versus versus innovation. And I think the hobby of amateur astronomy is made better by companies like this and Stellina as well, because these telescopes 
help you get underneath the stars with a positive experience and you're able to do, you're able to grow into it. And aperture mm -hmm. is still important, but it's not everything anymore. Thanks to the advances in detectors. Everybody that I know now, and I've done a lot of podcasts on this, they, while they, there are, there are plane, there are 24 inch plane wave telescopes out there, which by the way, cost $30,000. Uh, there are also people there, but there are people buying $4,000 APOs, uh, refractors that are what, 120 millimeters, right? So these are, aperture is becoming a different consideration now than it has been in the past. Before we wanted to get as many photons as possible, we still do in many, in many use cases, but not always. And what are the times when aperture is important versus when it isn't? So Frank, I want to thank you for taking time out to talk to me about this scope. I've had it for a few weeks. I'm, I'm, I've got very positive um, feedback on it from what I've used. And I see a lot of potential here for, uh, as, as to grow on as well. So um, I want so thank you very much for taking time out. Let me see if I could just get uh, to a couple of questions um, before you go, if you've got time. Um, yeah, I have time. Go oh, ahead. Okay, sure. Uh, Andy Walker's commenting, Tony, I currently have a 20-year-old Mead LX10. I have, I had an LX200 for many years. Uh, was interested in this scope. Saw a vid, which, uh, Thunderfoot's vid, which was uh, he had problems with it, and he asked me if I think it's worth the money. Um, I, based on what I've used so far and the the value that I think would come out of it, uh, it's it is a high end. It's up there in, for in terms of cost. Um, but would I spend the money on it? I think so. I think I would. Um, if for no other reason than the way it would transform my ability to communicate science. I like going to star parties and sharing what I'm doing. And when I'm giving a talk in front of a telescope in the dark, um, it would be really nice to have everybody download an app and say, okay, here we are. We're looking at a galaxy that is two and a half million light years away. And it's on a collision course with earth. And, uh, this galaxy is, uh, is, is, um, a sister galaxy of our own and uh, give all these facts about the Andromeda galaxy. And, and then if they have the app, I'll say, here's what we're looking at. Take it home on your phone, share it on your social media. And they come home from that star party with a little piece of what we just talked about. I like that. I think that's worth money and I would pay for that. Right. And, and if I could improve on this ability, instead of it having its own, hotspot that doesn't connect to the outside internet, which I understand why it doesn't, I would like to have one that does. And right now, none of these telescopes that are like this do that. So to me, that's worth money to be able to share this with a group of people. How many people, by the way, Frank, can use the app at one time? I mean, how many people? Uh, right now, I think we try up to seven, but um, we're still working on improving this. How, seven? Yeah. Okay. So seven other people I can share. Uh, in a group where before I'm having people look through an eyepiece uh, where they may or may not see anything and it might be out of focus or they might have an astigmatism like I do and they have to really wank the, uh, the focus out knob a little bit. So that aspect is worth a lot of money to me. Also, the ability to, uh, to be a part of a community that, that contributes to citizen science, especially these exoplanet light curves. So all of this is intriguing to me. And I, I get it that there are, there's no perfect telescope out there. I don't think any of us are going to say, oh, this is the one perfect telescope that is great for everybody and everything. It doesn't exist. 
So even you have to ask, not like that. What's that? Even the Keck telescope, which is an amazing piece of technology, <laughs> is not like that. That's right. There are things it can't do. I worked on the Dark Energy Survey, and I happened to use the 4-meter Blanco telescope and the 500 gigapixel or megapixel camera on it. And I can tell you it wasn't perfect, okay? But what, what it was designed to do, it did great. So these telescopes are changing the way that we not only interact with the night sky, but how we share it with each other. And that, I think, is hugely important. And that's why I like the EV scope. Okay. I don't see any other questions. I'm sorry if I missed your question or comment out there. There was a lot. Oh, hang on, hang on. There's some question marks now. Sorry. Bob Terry. Frank, are there any asteroids in a set of possible threats that are also in the set of practical occultations? So um, I've not yet done the circulation. I know I've been, uh, I, I contacted Paul Scholas from JPL because he's the specialist for this. He's the guy who basically will be able to answer to this question. So I'm waiting for him to, uh, to let me know. Uh, I will probably come to see him soon to make sure I get an answer to this question because okay. that's something which has been bugging me a lot. Well, what's the best way Whether to keep... we can? I'm sorry, interrupt. Sorry. Go ahead. Now, the, the thing is that planetary defense, we have a program with the TV scope to do planetary defense, and it will basically consist in observing directly asteroids as they fly by Earth, because they come very, super bright. Even the smaller, the very small three-meter-sized uh, asteroid will basically become bright enough for the TV scope. And my calculations show that we can have one event like this per week, per week, on the planet of an asteroid flying by nearby Earth that can be seen with the telescope. Now the question that from the gentleman you just got is whether or not we could observe the occultation introduced by this telescope, by this asteroid, so we get information about the size of this asteroid. And the problem is that they are super fast when they're close to us. So we, we basically need to do some trade-off calculation to see when we can see them and how long will last the, 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 the occultation and whether or not the EV-scope will be able to do it. As I mentioned, the shortest exposure we can do with the EV-scope is one millise uh, three milliseconds at the moment. But that's, we are limited to very bright stars in this case. So that's, that's the reason I need to talk to Paul Shodas about this in detail. Okay. Uh, and Andrew Planet's got a good question. Uh, is it possible, or um, I don't think it is, but maybe it might be in the future. Uh, Andrew Planet wants to know, is it possible to use several EV scopes spread over a large area at the same time over the Internet? So in the future, when the app will be more advanced, it will be possible to send notification to people surrounding you to be able to connect them to observe together the same target. And then the data will be downloaded to our server and we'll be able to combine them. So for one of the application I have for this is the occultation, but another one will be, for instance, for comets. So as I mentioned, there is a comet flying by. We discovered it a few weeks ago, whatever it's a political, but and suddenly this comet has a bright, uh, an outburst. It happens so often with, with comets. We will get a notification. We will ask all our users who are capable of observing the comet this night because the rotation of Earth to observe it and send us the data. And we continue to do this. So we can we are going to get the best image of the comet. And at a very good sample, we will have a very good sampling in time to be able to see the disruption of the comet as it happened. 
So that's the kind of application I have in mind. And this is software. What people describe here is software. Remember, we are a young company. We started in 2017 with a big Kickstarter. Now we have the scope. The software is really what we're going to focus on now. So all those ideas will be implemented over time. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's, that's another important thing to remember, I think, too. So, All right. Raj Luther wants to know, is it possible to change the components of the telescope, for example, the eyepiece or the lens? I guess he means the mirror. Not yet. Okay. Um, and I was, I, let me add something about this, because one of the reasons we, our, my colleagues at JPL are very interested in the EDSCOPE, it's also because it's a standardized instrument. Basically, when I, re when I receive data, I know which telescope, which detector, which filter has been taking this data. We are learning a lot already by receiving data coming from users about our EDSCOPE. Its behavior at different temperatures, the behavior at different uh, conditions, cities, suburbs, and so on. So imagine what we could be able to do when this, as this data grow in size and as we improve the, the data processing. We're basically going to be able to get much significant uh, sensitivity, I think, using the fact that we will know the detector, we will know the telescope which has been taking this, those data. This is not possible if you have a wide variety of different telescopes using different types of detectors, different types of filters. Okay, uh, Tony, oh, hang on. Uh, where is it? Don't, no, here it is. Rob, Bob up. When will the sensor upgrade version be available as I discussed with one of the owners? Is there a sensor upgrade coming? There is no sensor upgrade coming at the moment. Oh, okay. Uh, I think that's it for now. I think I'll, I don't see any other big questions that, um, uh, So I would just end up if you want, by just saying that we have, almost 1,000 telescopes shipped now. So people will be able to see them in action, I hope, by attending star parties and, uh, and having and learning about the technology and experiencing the telescope. Because really, truly experiencing the telescope is, makes a, a significant difference. It's not only what you read on the web or what the video you have seen on YouTube, which matters. Being able to use the telescope and enjoying the moment with friends and family. Okay. Well, on that note, I will leave it there. And I want to thank you so much, Frank. Frank, Frank Marches is from, the, he's the chief scientific officer of Unistellar. He's also the chair of the Exoplanet Group at SETI Institute. Um, and I, it's, it's good to have you back on the Hangouts. I'm always glad when you show up. So thank you. And maybe maybe we'll talk about Exoplanets sometime soon. I've got a lot of questions yes. about uh, what TESS is doing and and uh, things like that. So hopefully we can talk about Whenever it. Whenever you want to. <laughs> All right, great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Frank, for joining. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks okay. to our supporters, to our backers. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, I'm going to say uh, say goodbye now. Thank you. I want to thank you all so much for watching. And next week, I've got another Hangout coming, but I don't know what it's going to be about yet. So I'm checking. So so stay tuned with, uh, with uh, if you subscribe to the channel and you get notifications set, then you'll you'll know when the next one's coming. All right, so on behalf of Frank Marches, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.
The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.